Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a young man who trained as a doctor and decided that he could make a bigger difference to patients by exercising his creativity and becoming a digital health expert. In this conversation, Giles Morris talks about his journey from healthcare into entrepreneurship and how he made that transition. Giles Morrison, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with you today. And I'm particularly keen to talk to you because you're involved in digital health and specifically you style yourself as a clinical user experience specialist, but you are first and foremost a doctor. So let's talk about that. How did you go from being a doctor to this area? Yes. So it has been a mixed experience. There's some aspects that's been quite an easy transition and other parts that's been quite a culture shock. So I suppose the first thing really from, if we get the negative parts out of the way, a lot of us leave medicine over the last few years because we feel like we're not really able to give the care that we need to give, given the constraints we have to work within. So it's one thing having to deal with 12-hour shifts, night shifts, three days in a row over the weekend and, 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 and the like. But it's also the fact that you know that your patient needs just a little bit more time in the hospital or they need to have a specialist review, but none of that's going to get coordinated. They're going to get booted out of the hospital. It's very easy to become disillusioned. And so knowing that I could solve those problems or at least try and mitigate the issues that are caused by those problems by going into digital health was a big pull factor. And being able to work nine to five, but still paid well, was also a very, very good motivator as well. With that said, there's still quite a culture shock that you go through when you you know, start working in digital health or actually outside of medicine. The need for networking just shifts dramatically. Like You still need to know your seniors if you want to climb ranks in medicine, but it's not the same when you've left medicine to go into other industries. Like if you don't know anybody doing what you intend to do, it's very hard for you to get into that field. You know, even if you've got the qualifications, there's still going to be conversations that are happening in a pub or cafe or over the lunch table in the canteen that's going to facilitate promotions, facilitate professional development that supports. So there was a bit of a, a learning curve there with how to actually transition and to thrive and to recognize one's worth. Because again, when you work as a doctor, you're part of a team, you recognize that you've got a very specific role, but everything is a team effort. But again, when you leave medicine, there's so much more of an attitude that what have you done as an individual? Because we're not hiring a team, we're forming a team, but we're hiring you. So you knowing your worth becomes so much more important. And it's very easy as a doctor to have your worth trivialized to, well, you're the one that's holding the bleep right now that's your role, just get this job done type thing. If you haven't gone toilet, you haven't had lunch, that's unfortunate, but everyone suffers that. So you're not any more special type attitude. So I think these sort of things where you're having to find yourself to really understand your worth and how you contribute as someone unique and special, that was, that was a challenge. And I think a lot of um, my peers, whether they've gone into UX or digital health in general as clinicians, that transition's probably been the hardest for them. But for sure, what's made it very easy 
to make that transition is that this whole problem-solving exercise that clinicians go through, be it doctors, physician associates, even nurses, where you recognize a patient is unwell from the symptoms that they present or the signs that you detect. You go through a systematic approach to gather the insights about what their, you know, the history of what's going on, the situation that they're in, to then narrow down to a diagnosis. And normally there might be great guidelines or a lot of experience that you have to know what would be the ideal treatment before then evaluating to make sure that your treatment have worked, make a change or reassure the patient, so on and so forth. That whole problem solving process of getting someone well is literally what I do on a day-to-day basis in UX and user experience. And it's when I came to that realization, which allowed me to really thrive in this career change is that if you've been a good doctor, you know the main process as a doctor of problem solving. That is what you do in user experience. So we often say that we take people who are extremely bright and we put them into this medical training. And what we fail to recognize is they are extraordinarily creative as well. So what we do is we turn them into automatons. Basically, here you are in this situation. You are a technician. You fix this problem. What you don't teach them to do is to think for themselves in a creative way and to find creative solutions. How did you make the transition from a world where you're expected to interpret these signs and symptoms and come up with a diagnosis to one where you interpret these signs and symptoms, this problem, and create a solution? Yeah, that's a really good question. I suppose there's two parts to this. The first one is that I've always been very creative. I used to have the so-called high top, like what Will Smith had in um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So even when I was three years old, I would draw a stickman with this block on his head as a way of doing a self-portrait. So, uh, you know, very, very basic drawing skills. But as the years went by, even just a couple of years later, I was doing quite accurate recreations of illustrations from children's books. Not Now Bernard is one that comes to mind. So being artistic, being creative through music as well, keyboard, violin, um, percussion, is something that has been ingrained with me from a very young age. And I resisted losing that part of me in medicine. If I'm honest, there was times when I felt quite depressed because I realized I wasn't being creative enough in the day job because there's no room for it in the role. Like There's literally none. And the whole idea of, oh, there's an orchestra at the hospital. No one's got any time off to go to the orchestra. So you don't, you don't actually do anything creative at work. And it's very difficult to do anything creative with peers, colleagues and the like. So it would be during time off that I'll be able to do something creative. And I longed to be creative. So I think that was a major thing that made it easy for me to be creative in a new job. The next thing actually was a problem-solving exercise in the sense that I recognize that the problem I have is that I'm not happy working as a doctor. I love working with patients. I love using my knowledge and experiences of human biology and medicine to make people healthier and happier. And so the problem that I had, though, is how do I put all of that to good use if I don't work as a doctor? How can I combine it with my love and passion for being creative to actually give myself a good profession. So I was stubborn. I was like, I can't fail this. I've got to find a way to make this work. This is where the networking comes in, being very inquisitive to speak to others who are doing something even far removed from what I'm currently doing now 
as well as a few people who are in UX, just to learn from their experiences, their journeys, the books that they've read, the people they've spoken to, the courses that they might have gone to, events that they've attended. And that all then allowed me to realize that you know, user experience applied to healthcare can be a great career. And focusing on the design of patient-facing or clinician-facing products is something I can be very good at. So as doctors, we have a set of rules. We have a science that we can fall back on. It's called pathology, mm-hmm. physiology, microbiology, pharmacology, whatever else. Mm-hmm. The world that you now inhabit has another science to it, which is quite different. How did you, A, find the time, and B, how did you teach yourself that, those skills that allow you to use your creativity in another language? Yeah, that's a good question as well. So in the end, I've realized that the real way to develop in any career, medicine, UX, pilot, you know, soldier, whatever it is, first of all, you have to have some sort of formal study. And there's a lot of the formal study of medicine, particularly the diagnosis process, which I mentioned before, is already transferable. Then there's the self-study where when you've got a good foundation, you recognize additional knowledge that you want, that because your foundation is strong, you can build on it, but building on something that's already quite good. But you still need some sort of formal study because you don't know what you don't know. So doing a master's in human-computer interaction was really powerful. But that actually was satisfied by another need is to have mentors. People have been there, done that, worn the t-shirt. One of my mentors, Lisa Delgado, she made it quite clear. I will never be able to work with her unless I had a master's degree in human-computer interaction. So I applied to do that master's under her advice or orders, should I say. And it was very, very good advice, I must admit. The other side, as mentioned before as well, is networking. You can't do this on your own. Like it's a massive career change. And there's a lot of people who are actually are not going to have much faith in you making a successful career change. Because when you start a career as a doctor, you're expected to die with a stethoscope around your neck. So having people who are also on that journey, whether they're clinicians or non-clinicians, but are getting into UX, you want to be surrounded by people like that so that you can learn from them. You can help them on their learning journey. But that support is really important. And then work experience, ultimately having that work experience as well. So the first major step was taking that leap to leave medicine full time. I didn't do any um, locum shifts when I left on August 2014. I haven't been back to medicine. So that was the first major thing was making a full shift away from it. The next thing then was actually ensuring that I was surrounded by people who were interested in this field. But I didn't know about UX for six months when I first left medicine or seven months thereabout. So as soon as I did hear about it, I was well read on the topic and I would even contact the authors of articles that I was reading so that I could learn from them directly, which again, started to broaden the network, get mentors. The master's in human computer interaction is really good. It's great to provide you with that strong foundational knowledge doing the master's, but you still need to have a network. You still need to have work experience. You still need to have mentors. You still need to do some sort of self-study in order to fully reach your potential. You can't just rely on a degree, just like with medicine. Your real learning as a doctor happens once you're on the ward and it's your responsibility when the buck stops with you. Very same with, similar with any other industry, but especially UX. And and then teaching others, I think has been a really important way for me to, to learn because you can't teach what you don't know. So 
teaching at conferences, teaching um, a boot camp in UX. I even teach my own students who are learning clinical UX from me as well. How did you afford that transition? Because you come out of med school, you've spent six years or you know, four or five years as a, as a medical student, you're not earning anything. Suddenly you're earning money and you're back at university doing a master's. How did you make that transition? That was a bit difficult. So I worked part-time. I realized very early on that if I just did the master's alone, A, I wouldn't be able to afford it because I would need to pay the full fees in one year. I wouldn't have the money to do that. Getting a loan was quite difficult at the time, being a postgrad. But also, a big deficit of doing a master's in human-computer interaction is that everything that you're learning is still within a laboratory-type setting. It's still quite synthetic, the scenarios that you have. And so... Even just the idea of working till 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday in the library is not what you do when you work in industry. Like if you're having to do that, you're working at, you know, a design agency or one of the big consultancies and you're probably earning a lot of money, right? But also it's because there's a ridiculous tight deadline that's probably for that Monday. But this is not the normal way of working. You got to work smart. You should be, if you can't get the work done nine to five, you need more staff, you need more time, you need to reduce the scope of work, but something needs to give. You can't just perpetually work overtime, which is one of the things you're kind of taught to do as a doctor. So actually understanding that was was quite important for me. I was like, if I'm really going to get the most out of this degree, I can't just rely on putting what I've learned into practice in a university setting. I need to put it into practice in a day job. And that was very fruitful. It allowed me to climb the career ladder quite quickly because I was that was even part of what I was introducing people to myself about the fact that I'm not just the doctor who's doing UX, but I'm doing this master's as well. I just need like a day, a day and a half, a week to devote to studies for that. And they were happy with this. Okay, so tell us then how you deployed these skills. How have you used your medical know-how and the UX skills to make a difference? I work on quite a few different types of projects. Earlier on in my career, it may be something more like website design, which doesn't always need a lot of knowledge about medicine. When it does become extremely important, invaluable even, is when I'm working on digital therapeutics. So some sort of digital solution that's evidence-based, that's going to prevent, manage, or treat disease. So there, it's you're basically given digital medicine. So you have to have an understanding of not just the more obvious things or behavior change, like how do you convince someone or, or make someone comfortable to use this solution? Because as you were referring to before, there's this psychological, um, sorry, science background that you need, which is in psychology, behavioral science and the like, human-computer interaction. So you have that knowledge, but you also need to know, well, what are clinical pathways? What are clinical care plans? What is the patient's journey? Where are they going to, who's going to be the payer here? Because if you're not keeping the payer happy, you can have the best product in the world, but it will have zero therapeutic benefit if no one pays for it. So what's the business case that comes into play? So there's some of that that isn't so familiar to doctors, but as you climb ranks, you just get a bit more insight into that whole patient-provider-payer relationship. But that's really important to understand as well, because you're not just trying to treat an individual here. You're trying to treat all people who would use the product, which then ties into business needs 
that have to be met as well. So doing that in digital therapeutics is, is probably the best area that requires knowledge of medicine, as well as strong skills in user experience and business acumen. As a dyed-in-the-wool NHS doctor, which you will have been at the end of your training, how do you mm. feel about that transition to the dark side where you're actually now thinking of how is this going to make money for somebody? I was never really against that for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, you know, I've got a quality of life that I want to have, which requires income. You know, I've got to, got to have a salary. The other part of this, though, is the fact that healthcare is still a business. It's not charity. As much as we have charitable endeavors to keep people healthy, it's still a line of work. It's a profession. So it's really important that we ensure that whatever we do in healthcare, that it is sustainable from a business perspective, that there is a means to provide the funding or whatever resources that's needed for it to continue to have its output. Because even as doctors, if the hospital cannot afford to pay the staff, who then can't feed themselves, keep a roof over their own heads. They can't continue volunteering their time. If we can't afford the equipment and the medicines, then we can't actually give any therapeutic benefits to the patients. So on that same logic, it applies to whether it's the digital health startups, the big pharmaceutical companies, they need to make money. The problem though is where money is the first motivator for whatever we're doing, like that's when you run into problems. And I faced it multiple times throughout my career where the decision was, well, this is the way that we can get more people to pay for the product, or we're going to focus on end users, on patients who can pay. And it's like, well, I'm actually not worried about this middle-class, Caucasian, vegan, yoga-taking person. Like they're already healthy. They're all right. What I need to worry about is someone who's overweight, most likely of an ethnic so-called minority, but otherwise not Caucasian, who may not speak the native language of the country that they're in, who doesn't come from a highly educated background, doesn't know enough about how to manage their health, or at least doesn't have the habit to manage their health, who's extremely dependent on clinicians whenever they are sick, but also is very delayed in their presentation when they're sick. Those are the people I'm worried about. Because when you look after people who are already vulnerable, when you protect their health, if you've got services and products that can protect their health, then everybody else is going to be protected as well. This whole idea of looking after your so-called limiting users, people who have a legitimate need for healthcare in this situation, but have some sort of limitation, something that's going to make it difficult for them to actually deal with it appropriately. So in, in our case, it could be someone, like I said, they don't normally manage their health very well. They're not very sure how to actually do what's necessary to keep themselves healthy and when best to present to clinicians. How do we motivate them? How do we keep them healthy and aware of what could be hindering their health? And just to keep with that theme, just for a moment, before I ask you about your favorite project, Somebody's going to make money out of those people interacting with whatever it is in order to get a service. There's somebody in the background lurking, the dark forces, if you like, who want to make money out of this very noble situation that you're talking about. How do you navigate that? Gosh, it's very, very difficult 
it's very, very difficult as someone who, in all intents and purposes, is still a worker bee. I still have to keep the so-called boss or client happy because they pay my wage. So it's we often think from a logical perspective of like, well, let's show them the evidence of why they need to be more patient-focused, patient-centered in their decision-making. But if I'm brutally honest, if they really cared about this stuff already, you wouldn't have to be explaining it to them. So you need to speak their language. You need to speak about the money. This is a problem throughout healthcare, but definitely for UX professionals, is that we care so passionately about people that we forget that there are a layer of management and business owners and the like who they care about the money. It's not that they don't care about people, but they care about the money, especially if they're literally a finance officer. That's their job. So you've got to speak their language. You need to highlight how their failure to deal with patient-centered design appropriately is going to cost them money. When they realize that from primary research that you've done or secondary research that you've engaged with, that actually the current way of making their product or their service is going to have less paying users, or it's going to reduce the amount of times people continue to use the product or anything that can then go back to that bottom line, that that money that they're going to be having, suddenly they've changed their attitude. I've been in several meetings over the years where that has to be the focus about the money. And suddenly they're like, okay, then well, let's let's make a shift then because they they want to make sure they predict protect their money. But they also know that unless they've got a good product, they won't get the money. But unfortunately, and this is another massive problem that's related to this, most people in digital health who are calling the shots, who are at the top, they are not clinicians and they do not have experience in digital health. They are still making stuff that they believe is going to work as if they are experts of the problem, but they're not. They're experts of how to get investment and how to win the hearts and minds of people to work with them, but not to create the best product. Actually, it's the clinicians, it's the design team, the UX professionals, the researchers who actually have that knowledge, the people who are going to investigate the situation, investigate the scenario, and come up with solutions that could work and test them out before we invest even more money to turn in those ideas into a reality. We need more people like that at the top of the machine, rather than just at the bottom as little workers. So tell us about your favorite project or something that you particularly enjoy or something that was a success. Yeah, I think it always comes back to a project that was heavily inspired by my wife. So my wife lives with sickle cell anemia, and this was during my master's degree back in 2017 into 18, where I decided what my major project was going to be for my master's in human-computer interaction. And so basically, I wanted to see how can I have technology be more useful in the most difficult, stressful time for people with sickle cell when they go to A&E and they're just not being treated with the dignity or being given the prompt treatment that they deserve. So National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE guidelines dictate that sickle cell crisis is a medical emergency and that within 30 minutes of of, um, stepping over the threshold in the emergency department, they need to be on morphine, you know, they need to be on IV fluids, they need to already be investigated for any 
loci of infection. So chest infection is the most common one or any joint infection as well. And to get a hematologist review if there's any deterioration in that patient after half an hour. Like this is the clinical guidelines. Now, sickle cell being a condition that affects normally a minority of a population in the Western world across Europe and America, Australia and the like, means that most of the time, the clinician that you're going to see, the doctor, the nurse, whoever else, they may never have seen sickle cell or at least haven't seen it for years, should have learned it at medical school, but don't have the practical experience, that memory of what to do. And so as much as there's definitely racism that can play a part in this, where there's just ignorance of the disease and the ignorance of the severity. When a black person is, is saying, I need morphine, you've never seen them before. There's still a perception that's been well documented that clinicians, doctors and nurses alike think that this person could be a drug addict and that they're just come presenting to, to, to get fixed, not knowing that because they look quite well in the grand scheme of things, you know, overt symptoms or signs rather to suggest that this is severe pain, they genuinely need that morphine. So I was like, how can we just bypass the issues of the fact that just training up the clinicians doesn't work? Because if they're still not seeing the issues enough, actually training them some more isn't going to solve the problem. Or, oh, put the guidelines online. But if you don't know that you need the guidelines, then why would you look for them? And if there isn't that many computers, you know you need the guideline, but you can't access it. That's not going to help either. And the fact that there's going to be people who, no matter how much training and guidelines, if they have unconscious bias, or if they're actually just a little bit racist, (laughs) we still need to have something that can overcome that too. So for me, it was like, ultimately, there is truths about what needs to be done. Someone's most likely seen this patient before. There are guidelines on how to deal generally with someone in a sickle pain crisis. We need to just ensure that when the clinician needs it in the moment, it's right there in front of them. In the modern world, even homeless people have mobile phones. It's not that far-fetched to put this data on the patient's phone itself, but present it in such a way that it's easy for a clinician to A, trust it and also act upon it. So I came up with a design that had the right branding with NHS sort of branding and logo, Royal College of Emergency Medicine branding. So it's all still made up. It was just a prototype, but had clear guidance on what needs to be done for that patient on a personal level. What is the ideal dose of morphine? So you're not having to keep titrating every 15 or 30 minutes, just give them the good dose first time and have details on their regular hematologist that they see. And I tested it out and as a prototype with a number of hematologists and emergency physicians, and they loved it. Having that information on the phone, especially even just a general knowledge of sickle cell and sickle crisis, because doctors can be very proud. They, they, we're taught to be strong and knowledgeable at all times, to never have anybody have any fear that we don't know what we're doing, even though many times we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so take that pride to the side and just keep in mind, just give them the information that they need on the phone, but not the clinician's phone because they you, know, you can't tell them to draw at their phone. They're not going to necessarily know it, but the patient knows themselves. And getting the patients to buy into having an app or at least some sort of PDF or something on their phone is very, very easy. Like They know what it means to go to A&E 
and not get treated respectfully or get the treatment that they need promptly. So convincing them is easy. And in getting the hematologist to document what's appropriate for their patient during our patient's clinic, again, it's very easy to do because they're doing it anyway. It's just that the system that they have to document about what's to be done for the patient is buried in an electronic health record or worse, printed off, stuck on a notice board with loads of other things stuck on the notice board and that's ignored. So trying to simplify the whole process and be like, well, the constant here is the patient. Give the patient the data that's needed, the information that's needed, and then they present it at the time that it's needed for the clinicians. So one of my students now is learning clinical UX from me. They're exploring how to turn this into a real product, which is really exciting. But that's definitely the project that I've been most happy with because I could see how it actually solves a real problem from doing that primary and secondary research. And also it's a way for me to still love my wife because I've made something that you know could help her personally. That's a wonderful idea. And just a, a question, who do you think is going to pay for that? If it was a system, a healthcare system that is publicly funded, there's huge incentive for the local government, central government to pay because the cost of extended stays because of sickle crisis far exceeds the cost on an annual level, even over like a six month period to just make this sort of product. So I can definitely see that um, those who are normally paying for this service would pay. Same for insurance companies. The other thing as well is that specifically with the situation with sickle cell, but also applicable to other conditions that are, are more rare, there isn't a very good centralized repository of information about the patients, like a database. And this system can really help with research and just evaluating the services that are being done. So if, again, if it's not academia that's paying for it directly, it can still be whoever the payers are. So if it's insurance companies or government themselves should be incentivized to to pay. Giles Morrison, I'm in awe of your courage. I'm in awe of your creativity and making this transition from being a physician to speaking so eloquently about UX and all things that are going to make such a difference to the lives of so many patients. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being so kind as to spend time with me. I hope that we will be speaking again very soon. Sure. Thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.